Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that, is, that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. We thank God for his word. How many people know this next song? There's a place where the streets shine. Brilliant. That's good. Let's stand and sing it then.
afternoon, everybody. Shall I move that out of the way and then there's no possibility of um, interference here? Just a couple of things before I... Mm, yes. Right, just a couple of things before I get into the scriptures. First of all, um, what's happening in midweek service the next couple of times. Um, I have a replacement hip due on uh, next Tuesday. So I shan't be here in a couple of weeks' time. Our next meeting after that is going to be three weeks later because the hall is being refurbished on the 29th of March. So our Easter service will be on the 5th of April. There are um, new programmes available, and I'm not sure whether they've come through yet. But, okay, just check with Ruth afterwards, perhaps, um, because I think she's done them. Um, so we should have something in front of us that reminds us that the second meeting after this is going to be the 5th of April, not the 29th of March. On that uh, afternoon, I hope to be back, but um, I probably won't be in a position to do an awful lot of preparation beforehand. So I'm trying to get a lot of this done before uh, next week. We will have uh, seven readings and we will need seven readers. So I shall be uh, scouting around after the service. And if you're happy to read, that would be lovely. Um, I'd love to get most of the slots filled this afternoon, if I can, so that I can run this thing off. Bef we have at the back um, the, uh, the new programmes. That's brilliant. Um, the other thing is that um, I'm trying something slightly different this afternoon. We've got a PowerPoint presentation, which I've used in churches lots, but we've not, I've not tried it on a Wednesday afternoon. So we'll see what happens. David, bless him at the back, has sweated blood to make this happen. So if it works, he's the man to, to whom all the credit needs to go. Thanks, David. So here we are in the first 34 verses of... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has spelled out the Christian perspective on life beyond death. He's explored a hope that is certain, that is crucial, a hope that we can share, and a hope that really should be motivating us. And now in verse 35, somebody comes along throwing a bit of a spanner in the works. Somebody will say, says Paul, somebody will say, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they going to come? It may be a question that some of the folks in the Corinthian church were already asking. And effectively it is, well, if there's a resurrection, how's it going to happen? What kind of body are we supposed to have? And, and behind the question is an underlying assumption. Well, I can't imagine this. And if I can't imagine it, it can't be real. Right at the beginning of this series, in the first few verses of the chapter, Paul was addressing a question of reason. What is the evidence for the resurrection? Why should I believe it with my mind? The problem here is not that we can't find evidence for the resurrection. It is that we can't picture it. This is the objection that's being brought here. It seems unimaginable. And we do struggle to imagine resurrection life. 
Many of the ways that we imagine the resurrection of the dead really strain your credulity to breaking point, don't they? We'll float on clouds, we'll play harps, we'll look down on our loved ones through a hole in the sky. And even some of the Christian imagery sounds weird, doesn't it? We've got a song that speaks of emerald courts and sapphire skies. We were singing just a moment ago about a city where the streets shine. Perhaps uh, we picture it the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, do. And uh, our resurrection life is going to be a sort of Midwestern American homestead straight out of the Waltons. Have you ever seen their stuff? That's what it looks like. Good night, John Boy. (laughs) We have a Christmas carol that uh, perhaps has the most unappetizing vision of eternity that I can think of. Once in Royal David City imagines eternal life like this. When, like stars, his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. I can't imagine anything very much more tedious than that. Standing, waiting, twiddling your thumbs, wearing a white smock forever and ever. And really, there's something inside me which says, well, if that's heaven, then please somebody show me the way to the other place. (laughs) Our imaginations really struggle, don't they, with resurrection life. It feels artificial. Harps, clouds, emerald courts, sapphire skies, American homesteads, angels, white robes, shining streets, all of that lot. Surely we think that all can't be real, can it? Well, says Paul, the reality of resurrection absolutely is real. What does he say to settle our minds on this? He points to three things. First of all, he points us to the incredible variety in creation. Uh, Verses 39 to 41 say, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another. And, And star differs from star in splendor. There is huge variety here. One of the most obvious facts about the creative world is this incredible variety. There are 391,000 known plant species on the globe. There are no less than, and I find this staggering, 8.7 million different species of animals. There is a huge variety of stars and other heavenly bodies out there in space. In preparation for this sermon, I googled uh, weird deep sea creatures. And I could have had page after page after page of these things, but, but here's just four of them. You couldn't make them up. But actually, every one of those is absolutely real. And of course, come to that, these days there are all kinds of things that we can't begin to imagine or picture which we know are real. Atoms, subatomic particles, electricity, black holes in space, so-called dark matter in the universe, which uh, the scientists reckon makes up 96% of the whole thing, and we've not a clue what it is. Nobody's got a clue. And none of the things that I've mentioned are things that we can realistically picture. We can't imagine any one of those. But there's strong evidence that tells us that they're all real. 
In other words, as Paul says here, our imagination may fail us when it comes to picturing our resurrection life. But there is no question of God's creativity being limited by what we can imagine. We shouldn't be too worried by our failure to picture what resurrection life is going to be like. That's the first thing that Paul points to. There's variety, such variety in creation. Second thing is the cycle of life, death and rebirth that the world is absolutely awash with. Winter is followed by spring. Seeds that appear to die in the autumn come vibrantly alive again the following year. A month ago, all the trees and the plants all looked to be dead, didn't they? But now everywhere you look, there's new life coming. Buds and flowers of all sorts. In nature, what looks like death again and again turns into new life. Well, if God can do that in his world, why can't he do it in us? But more than that, it isn't just a picture of death and rebirth. It is also, as you look at the world, the drama of death and transformation. Verses 36 to 38. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be. You just plant a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own kind of body. You sow a seed, it decays. It appears to be dead in the ground. But next spring, you don't just get seeds coming out of the ground. Where there was a packet of seeds, now there's a carpet of flowers. Where there was an acorn, now eventually there's an oak tree. And you would never have guessed that in those tiny seeds were glorious blooms. And you would never have guessed that in that tiny oak uh, acorn was a majestic great oak tree. But over and over and over again it is so. And, and new life, the new life is unimaginably different from the life that decayed and died. It's unimaginably greater and more beautiful. We struggle to get our imagination around the kind of life that we'll live when this life ends. Well, of course we do. Of course we do. We simply haven't got the words to describe it. Imagine for a moment that we could communicate with an unborn baby, the fetus in his mother's womb. Imagine that we could converse, that we have words that would do this. How would you describe to that baby the life that it would experience once it was born? What words could convey eating, building relationships, enjoying music, playing football, or or even breathing come to that? You would explain that one day he wouldn't be any longer swimming in amniotic fluid. He wouldn't hear his mother's heartbeat. He would lose all of that. To the unborn child, that would sound like the end of his world. But of course it isn't. It's actually the beginning of a new life, a bigger life, a more fulfilling life than he's yet experienced. And so I can't give you this afternoon, nobody can, a picture, a realistic picture of resurrection life. But it doesn't matter one little bit. Because this new God-transformed resurrection life beyond this one will be so much more than anything that we've yet known. We can't describe it in picture terms. What can we say about it? Four things. 
First of all, it will be different, and that should be obvious by now, but Paul spells it out in verse 50, which will be part of next uh, time's uh, reading. Flesh and blood doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. Our resurrection will not be like Lazarus's resurrection, just coming back to the life that we left. It isn't the Jehovah's Witnesses' American homestead. It isn't. It isn't just a continuation of what we've already got, as I think we imagine when we ask questions like, will there be mountains in heaven? Will there be dogs and cats? Can I eat ice cream sundaes in heaven? No, it's a different life. Secondly, it is going to be a bigger life. You know, the the Greeks had the idea that... um, In each of us, there is an immortal soul. There's a little bit of us that never dies. We've got a body. We have relationships with people. We have the enjoyment of music and art and all that sort of stuff. We climb mountains. We we look at glorious sunsets. All that's to do with the body. But we also have a soul. And when we die, the Greeks thought, the body dies, of course, but most of the stuff and most of the stuff that gives life color and excitement dies with it. But the soul goes on, and it goes on forever and ever. And actually, a lot of Christians still carry that idea in our heads, but it isn't a biblical view. The Bible teaches not the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of the body. And it doesn't mean that, of course, in a crudely literal way, but but what it's trying to say is that nothing that makes our life rich and wonderful here is going to be lost. There will be no sense of loss. There will be no sort of sense of an eternity of saying, well, we used really to enjoy that. Oh, I, I, this is not an afterlife we're talking about, not like the afterglow of a light that's gone out. This is actually life fulfilled and completed. It's a transformed life. Resurrection life is as much greater than this one as an oak tree is greater than the acorn. Or a field of flowers is greater than a packet of seeds. And so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. And that brings us to the third thing that we can say about resurrection life that it is going to be a permanent and indestructible life. Of course, our life here is not. Our bodies are prone to illness and disability. Even the most fortunate of us experience the gradual losses that come with old age. Stiff limbs, failing minds, body parts that wear out. We are distinctly perishable goods. We have a very definite best-before date stamped all over us. But our resurrection bodies are not going to be like that. We will be raised, says Paul, imperishable. Again, our our bodies here are weak. That's very obvious to many of us here, I guess. Our days of athletic prowess are some way back in the past. Nowadays, our battles aren't to improve our marathon PBs. They're how do I get out of bed in the morning? And increasingly, you know, we might find ourselves in a position of needing other people to do stuff for us that we've always done for ourselves. 
Back in the day, we'd have fought people off when they tried to help us. But now, perhaps, we have to accept help. Even when doing rather basic things. At this point in my existence, I need a contraption to help me get a sock on. I need another contraption to get, help me get my shoes on. It won't be like that in the resurrection. Our resurrection bodies will be raised in power. And so let me warn you, when my resurrection body comes, guys, you'd better watch out. (laughs) No pain, no ageing, no disability, no sudden memory losses, no brain freezes. You know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And finally, it is going to be a Christ-shaped life. Verses 45 to 47. And so it's written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. We all have this kind of flawed spiritual DNA that we've inherited from the first failed humans. But as the people of Christ, we also have a new spiritual DNA from the last Adam, the second man, the, the, the man from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, says Paul, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Incidentally, some of you will have read a book called The Heavenly Man about a Chinese Christian. I have to tell you, there is only one heavenly man who ever existed, and he wasn't Chinese. He was Jewish, and his name was Jesus. And verse 49 tells us that we will bear his image. What does that mean? Well, clearly it doesn't mean that we'll bear his physical image. We won't go through eternity with beard and sandals. In his first letter, John tells us, now we are children of God and what we will be has not been made known yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will bear his image in uncompromised holiness. Sin and corruption will be a thing of the past. Temptation will be history. We will uncomplicatedly delight in all that is good and godly. That's wonderful. We will bear his image in unclouded vision. We will see Christ as he is. We will know the Lord as clearly and fully as he knows us. We will bear his image in unlimited love. The end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says there are three things that eternally remain. There is faith and there's hope and love but actually the greatest of those is love we will be caught up in the glorious affirmation and the care of father son and holy spirit we will be lost in wonder love and praise and by the same token we will bear his image in unalloyed unalloyed joy i should have written something simpler unalloyed joy And you can see why, can't you? Knowing all of this to be true, the early Christians were prepared to be thrown to the lions, crucified upside down, turned into human torches along the Appian Way. Why they thought it was worthwhile to stick with Christ when they had this kind of future to look forward to. More prosaically, 
One of the early church fathers compared death of a brother or sister in Christ to a ship sailing out of harbour. Ship leaves its moorings, slowly it disappears over the horizon until finally you can see only a dot and then you can see nothing at all. We say, she's gone, she's gone. One day you see that ship will arrive on another shore to be welcomed in another land. And similarly with those that we have loved who've died in Christ, it will feel as if they've gone, as if they are lost to us, but they're not. Because there is another land and another shore where a welcome has been prepared. And one day you and I also will land on that shore And we too will be welcomed into that kingdom, the kingdom of God. Father, thank you that we can have a confidence in resurrection life. We will never know the details until we get there. We cannot picture it, we cannot imagine it, we have no realistic sort of images to, to have of it, but we have the assurance that the God of incomparable variety and creativity, the God who turns death into life all around us, the God who routinely transforms that which is dying into something which is immeasurably greater, the God who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will also bring us with him. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance that gives us. And we don't know the details, we don't need to, Lord, we know the person who's leading us there and that's enough and we thank you for it Lord and Lord I pray that each one of us as many of us are looking at our um, facing our mortality day by day would live in the confidence of that that this wouldn't just be something that we kind of know in our heads but that it'll be something a, a truth, a reality that captures our hearts that gives us peace in the storm, that gives us hope when darkness comes. Lord, thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a final um, hymn, but uh, there's the opportunity to share testimonies or questions. Um, Don't give me as hard a time as you gave Rob the other week. Um, Remember, I'm a poor little old man, so I need treating gently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can't treat you gently. (laughs) Thank you. No, no. It's just I've read various, um, you know, articles about this as as you do over over the years, and uh, some. Teachers, theologians suggest that what goes on is, is your character or personality or something. Um, I sometimes feel slightly troubled by this because I think for certain aspects of my character I'd rather disappeared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and also people talk about you know, meeting their loved ones and so on. So when you and I get to heaven and bump into each other, will we recognise each other, do you think? I think so. I think so because um, it is a place where love is completed. I don't think there's love without recognition. Um, 
So how we will recognise each other, I'm not sure. But I've no real doubt that we will. But like you, there are aspects of my personality I'd be very glad to leave here. I think that Sue would be quite glad for me to leave them here as well. It's, it's not really a question, it's just, I suppose it's confirmation. Um, I was reading this morning um, in the, 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 the new Open Doors booklet of, of two ladies, one in East Africa and one in Iran, and the, the kind of things that they have had to suffer because they have chosen to follow Christ mm. as involved being beaten by their husbands, being forced to leave their home and their children, um, having um, no job, no livelihood, no income, having to flee their country. Um, I don't think we have um, any real idea of what that's like in this country. Mm. But those ladies have chosen to give their lives to Jesus yeah. because their hope of what is to come yeah. far exceeds the persecution that they're having to endure. And, and when we listen to that, um, we can see that, uh, yeah, it's good to look forward to. If we really have this perspective of eternity, it, it casts a different light on every experience that we have now. There can be unpleasantness, there can be pain, there can be all sorts of stuff. But also, there's a light, always, there's the lights beyond that. Um, and I think that changes the way that we deal with stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it changes the experience itself. <laughs>